2: Hello and welcome to Novel Dialogue, a literary podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies. I'm one of your hosts, Vade. John Plotz is my co-host and partner in Pod. You may have heard some of his episodes earlier in the season. At Novel Dialogue, we believe critics and novelists belong in conversation and we talk about novels from every angle. How we read them, write them, publish them, and remember them. We strive to bring you, our listeners, friendly and sophisticated dialogues that dissect the art of novel writing, and consider the influence of characters, plots, and stories on how we think about our world. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Novel Dialogue on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am thrilled to be in the virtual studio with the extraordinary and much beloved writer, George Saunders, and the always insightful critic, Michael Johnston. Michael is an associate professor of English at Purdue, where he teaches courses on the history of fiction. He has written a book called Romance and the Gentry in Late Medieval England, and he brings a long view of the classics to his reading of contemporary fiction. So thanks for being here, Michael.
0: It's my pleasure. Thank you for uh, inviting me to do this, Artie.
2: Sure. George Saunders is widely recognized as a master of the short story form, and he gives a master class in reading and writing in his latest book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. His first, and we hope not his last novel, is Lincoln in the Bardo, It debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list and won the Man Booker Prize in 2017. The novel beautifully weaves together historical quotation and original prose to bring us a version of Lincoln we could only see and feel through fiction. It offers a Lincoln inhabited by the flawed and hilarious characters who make it into the Bardo, but not into the history books. Although George Saunders is often compared to great American authors, Mark Twain, Flannery O'Connor, Raymond Carver, I found myself connecting Lincoln and the Bardo back to James Joyce's Dubliners. I was reminded of Joyce's scrupulous portraits of ordinary people, full of regret, but also capable of great hospitality. George, it's an honor to have you here with us. Thank you for making time.
1: Oh, thank you for asking me. And any any relation to Joyce, I appreciate.
2: (laughs) Yes. Um, Okay. Well, without further ado, Michael, I'm going to hand it over to you and let's get started.
1: Okay, great. Thanks, Arthi. I'm really looking
0: forward to this, and thank you, George, for for uh, for joining us. Uh, I think I've asked you to prepare a passage, and I was honored that you were willing to take a nomination from me, so I had asked you to prepare uh, something from near the end of Lincoln and the Bardo to read from to get us started, so uh, I'll turn it over to you to, to start us off here, George.
1: Sure. This is, um, in, in the book, one of the sort of underlying ideas is that these Spirits are stuck in this uh, kind of afterlife place called the bardo and they're stuck kind of by their own will that something in their life was unsatisfying so um, by sort of repeating their 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 gripe basically or their life story. They're able to sort of stay temporarily in this kind of uh, space So this is just a moment when one of our characters this guy Roger Bevins finally succumbs and goes on to whatever the next thing is and in in life He was a, a young a gay man who had been sort of disappointed in love and in a kind of Rash uh, moment of passion he killed himself and at the very last moment as he was dying um, he, he really regretted it and so his particular Sort of manifestation in this place is that he just longs for the things of the world He realized in that last instant how beautiful the world was and um, uh, So that's kind of where we we find him here when when finally it's uh, it's time for him to go from within the train came the familiar yet always bone-chilling fire sound of the matter blooming phenomenon. The train began to vibrate. The hogs' wheel. I threw myself down on the good and blessed earth, soon to be mine no more. The train exploded. Seats rained down. Hog parts rained down. Menus rained down. Luggage, newspapers, umbrellas, ladies' hats, men's shoes, cheap novels rained down. Rising to my knees I saw that where the train had been was now only the dreaded iron fence and there was nothing left for me to do but go, though the things of the world were strong with me still. Such as, for example, a gaggle of children trudging through a side-blown December flurry, a friendly mat chair beneath some collision-tilted streetlight, a frozen clock bird visited within its high tower. Cold water from a tin jug. Toweling off one's clinging shirt, post-June rain. Pearls, rags, buttons, rug tuft, beer froth. Someone's kind wishes for you. Someone remembering to write. Someone noticing that you are not at all at ease. A bloody roast, death red on a platter. A top underhand as you flee late to some chalk and wood fire smelling schoolhouse. Geese above, clover below. The sound of one's own breath when winded. The way of moistness in the eye will blur a field of stars. The sore place on the shoulder a resting toboggan makes. Writing one's beloved's name upon a frosted window with a gloved finger. Tying a shoe, tying a knot on a package, a mouth on yours, a hand on yours. The ending of the day, the beginning of the day, the feeling that there will always be a day ahead. Goodbye. I must now say goodbye to all of it loon call in the dark, calf cramp in the spring, neck rub in the parlor, milk sip at end of day. Some bandy-legged dog proudly back plows the grass to cover its modest shit. A cloud mass down valley breaks apart over the course of a brandy-deepened hour. Louvered blinds yield dusty beneath your dragging finger, and it is nearly noon, and you must decide. You have seen what you have seen, and it has wounded you, and it seems you have only one choice left. Blood-stained porcelain bowl wobbles face down on wood floor. Orange peel, not at all stirred by disbelieving last breath there among that fine summer dust layer. Fatal knife set down in passing panic on a familiar wobbly banister. Later dropped, thrown by mother, dear mother, heart sick. Into the slow flowing chocolate brown Potomac. Let me try that last line there. Later dropped, thrown by mother, dear mother, heartsick into the slow-flowing chocolate-brown Potomac. None of it was real. Nothing was real. Everything was real. Inconceivably real. Infinitely dear. These and all things was nothing, latent within a vast energy broth, but then we named them and loved them, and in this way brought them forth, and now must lose them. I send this out to you, dear friends, before I go in this instantaneous thought-burst from a place where time slows and then stops and we may live forever in a single instant. Goodbye, goodbye, good. The oh. end. <laughs> <laughs>
0: there is there is a bit more for those of you who have read uh, Lincoln and the Bardo. that is, of course, quite near the end. Um, thank you for reading that, George. I, I really wanted to hear you read that piece uh, because I, I just find that the way you condense all of those moments of happiness and sadness of a life down into almost like a series of flashes of insight at the end before he, as you said, goes on to um, wherever he's he's on to next. Uh, did you have anything you wanted to, to mm-hmm. say about that particular passage?
1: No, I mean, it was just um, one of the interesting things about this book was that, you know, by, by my construction mm-hmm. of it, everybody who is a ghost in the book should have some reason. You know, there's some something in this life that just wasn't, right for him or her and so it was and then the other sort of idea was that they, there was always a, either a a physical manifestation of that longing or sometimes a linguistic longing so in bevan's case he had the phys, physical thing of being kind of shiva like he had a bunch of arms and uh, ears and uh, noses and mouths with which to you know experience the things of the world and then i just kind of stumbled on this verbal uh patterning it's kind of a modernist riff you know of just um trying to uh, take different little mostly minor physical sensations and then uh produce present them in the most crunched down Mm -hmm. language i could like to really compress it and actually kind of freakify a little bit and make it seem uh almost almost difficult to unpack i had in mind the idea of like one of those candies that you bite down and you get this big burst of flavor (laughs) like these things should be so compressed and dense that they didn't you know they didn't read naturally but if you stay there a second they would they would you know make a whole vignette and
0: so I think we'll circle back to that very passage because it sets up a kind of contrast with a humorous bit that follows. Um, but I'll start a little bit more generally and just think about um, what you think uh, good fiction should do. Uh, you, you've just written this whole book on, on Russian writers that, that Artie mentioned in her intro, a, a Swim in the Pond in the Rain. Um, and you really, in that book, you frequently talk about the, the different, the things you think uh, good fiction is supposed to do for us as readers. So I'd like to start by asking you, where do you, where do you, where did you come up with your ideas for uh, good fiction? What were the sort of formative influences on you and thinking about the concept of what fiction ought to do in our world as readers?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing was that just, you know, early on, it just thrilled me to, to be reading a scale model of the world I was in. I don't, I, I still don't know why that should be interesting to us, but I remember, uh, in the book, I write about being in Texas and working at a, a, a geophysical job out in, in the desert and then coming back at night and reading The Grapes of Wrath. And just that kind of feeling of, oh, yeah, so that book, it, it didn't come out of nothing. Like somebody lived a life similar to mine and then made this highly artificial, beautiful thing out of that experience. And I always I always was excited by that. Um, and then I think also I, I had a um, an idea that I kind of associate with... Being working class i'm not sure if that's really right but the notion just that these stories existed to um well for fun for one thing but also to somehow make this life journey a little more uh sensible you know that it, it somehow was a uh an aid to help helping you live and i had i had come to reading really through kind of a self-help angle you know like i read robert persig uh zen of the art of motorcycle maintenance and i mm-hmm. was a big ayn rand fan at one point and uh, so, uh, to me, it was sort of uh, uh, just tacitly understood that a, a work of fiction was there to locate you in the world somehow in a way that would be profitable to you, probably. Um, so, that was really it. And now, I mean, my, my thought about fiction is that it's best to leave it pretty open what it does. You certainly wouldn't want to say what it has to do. And the best way to know that is to observe what it does to you, the reader, you know, when you read your favorite passage or your favorite book. how How are you when you start and where are you at the end that's a pretty grounded almost scientific way to think about it
0: yeah uh i I assume the ayn rand has uh has been left in your past or do you still do you still read her
1: it it has it has been very much left in the past Yeah. yeah
2: you know you had compared uh fiction to a laboratory i think in a swim in a pond in the rain and you also talked about you know having gone to, to school for geophysical engineering. And I think scientific metaphors really populate your work from time to time. And so I was just curious whether you, um, to, to kind of ask it in maybe bigger terms than I would even want to, but do you think that the sciences and the humanities should be talking to each other more than they do? Do you feel like fiction, your fiction has been um, informed by your scientific background and do you think that fiction informs the sciences at all? I, I mean, someone who's crossed the boundary, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I think I, I know I learned a lot about, um, well, about rigor, for one thing, you know, because in science theory, it it's, it doesn't matter how hard you tried, you know, it the school of minds where I went to school, there was a kind of a unofficial mantra, which is no partial credit. So if you, if you got, you know, if you did a 15 page proof and it was wrong, you got zero, you know, and nobody cried about it. Uh, so that was helpful to a writer. But I also think um, the other thing has been helpful to me is to think that, you know, a work of fiction is it's a rhetorical argument, basically, at least the way I understand it. it it's raising certain questions and it's kind of ruling out certain solutions then forcing itself onto a narrower um logical path and so on which is very much like a proof uh you know a a kind of a loose groovy you know beautiful proof but um it's been a real comfort to me to think well if if a if a piece i'm working on isn't flying i don't have to despair it's not because of some existential defect in me it just needs more work and You can section off parts and work on those. You can um, have faith in the power of iteration. So I think there's a a lot of crossover, and maybe the biggest one is just that in both systems, um, you know, I think both systems are about truth. They're about a kind of truth, and they're also about seeing what's actually there. So in you know a science experiment, you have a hypothesis. The experiment shows that your hypothesis is wrong. That's actually not a tragedy. It's it's good, you know. Um, likewise in a book, you know, if, if you have a certain model of the book and your model turns out to be not very interesting, then that's not really a tragedy. You, it, it leads you to higher ground. So I felt a lot of, a lot of, of firing, And I think we should talk more because they're, they're not, I think what's happened in the sciences is it's gotten so specialized that it's very hard to have the kind of generalist conversations that we might've had in the 19th century. But, right. um, the, you know, divorcing those two things is, is detrimental to both, I think.
2: Yeah. Now, literary critics would read Darwin, and it's hard to imagine doing that today with the leading scientific figures of our day, mm. <laughs> for sure. In.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've been reading some uh, some books about the brain. Uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett has a kind of a you know, it's a generalist uh, summation of her of her research. But it's really interesting. The firing about, for example, um, she says that the way the brain processes reality is basically to in every instant quickly propose a scale model based on you know, your past experiences. And then in a, a much lighter ratio than was previously thought, your senses then augment and correct and revise that, that picture. And this happens you know, many, many times instantaneously, but it apparently starts at the back of your brain and moves forward. And the thing that um, it's gaining as it moves forward is specificity which of course rang all kind of bells for me in terms of, of, of the process of revising fiction. Mm. Somewhere in the middle
0: of um, your uh Swimming the Pond in the Rain, when you're talking about Gogol's The Nose, which was absolutely fascinating. I, I'm i so glad that you introduced me to that story. Uh, but in your uh, discussion of the story, you ask, and Arthi, I don't know what the policy on swearing is here, but I'm reading Joel's. You can, can word, go so, for it. All right. No policy. So here, here we go. Um, you ask <laughs> that, that given how generally sweet people are, why is the world so fucked up? And I, as I thought about that question, it really occurred to me as, as kind of something that a lot of your fiction seems to be circling around. But in the book, you tell us what you think Gogol's saying about that, but you don't give us in your own words how you answer that question. So I'd be curious to hear from you uh, both, why do you think the world is so fucked, if pe- fucked up if people are so sweet? Um, and also then how do you think, you know, you, how do you see your fiction sort of stepping into that question?
1: yeah well, I think I mean' I'm, I'm a Buddhist, and so my basic belief is that the the world is fucked up and we're sweet because we uh, believe a little too much in the fiction that the self exists. you know, we, in other words, that we believe it viscerally in every breath that that George is real and permanent and central and a big deal. and, you know, this is his movie, and you guys are just you know co-stars. Uh, so then I think it's it with that um, delusional idea in place, it's possible to be completely well intentioned and completely um, sweet, you know, in other words, you you wake up in the morning thinking you're a good person and you want to uh, help and then you can go out and because you're not fully accepting other people as being as real as you are, you can then walk right over them, you know, and, and, and in the other direction, too. So I think it's basically just that idea you know that we i I don't really think and at least you know i'm 62 years old and i've been in a lot of situations some dangerous some you know uh violent i've never really met anybody who you know had the it comes off as intentionally evil you know the cruella de vil model of morality where ha ha and now you see it a lot in movies you know the the really bad guy who's really enjoying being bad but in real life i haven't i you know i met i met people who did really terrible things and in their recounting of those things they were quite aware that they had done horrible things and they were working very hard to justify it but they hadn't quite given up on the idea of themselves as being a good person so i think it has to do with this you know being trapped in one's own phenomenon and then uh yeah, something like that, you know. In terms of fiction, I'm not really sure. I mean, I, I think what happens is that some of my stories illustrate that by having multiple narrators, and so you can see person A thinking he's doing one thing, and you can see person B regarding it a different way. So in some ways, it's sort of an enactment of that of that arrangement.
0: Yeah, I, I just I really love that that question. It's so it's so simple and direct. You know, why is the world so fucked up? People are so sweet. Um, but it, I, I just love how it balances the cynicism, the recognition of of the world's problems, but also at the same time really kind of valuing the the human and the the, the sanctity of each individual. And that that's another thing I wanted to, to talk about. This kind of segues into that, that. You really seem to in your writing. I get a real sense of um, I don't want to say humanity. That sounds a little cheesy, but I get a real sense in in th- that you. That you're that you're trying to wrestle with ideas of how of how to treat each individual as
1: sacred well it might go back a little to the previous question mm-hmm. so if we have a, a model of the world that disallows the idea of the you know the snickering purposely evil person let's say we take that person off from it then everybody who's doing harm is uh we're saying sweet but what i really mean is they're they're they're, in their own narrative, they're doing good somehow, or they feel like they're fighting for righteousness. So if you accept that model, then I think it induces a little bit of a, a more gentle uh, approach to life, even when you're doing interventions, you know, even when you're really fighting against a, an evil force, you, you are mindful of the fact that those people uh, are inside of a deluded fiction and that possibly if you could penetrate that, you might be able to to, to do some good. So in terms of... of um fiction honestly no what I what I do is I try to live I try to think a lot about these things I try to have some semblance of a spiritual life uh trusting that when I go to do my writing all that stuff will come in very naturally with because otherwise it sometimes comes in uh programmatically you know Mm -hmm. It, it it overrides the energy of the actual story so I think you have to kind of keep that stuff back um and then this is the part I don't really understand, but as I describe in the book, the, the approach to writing that I use is basically just to try to, keep my mind, pretty quiet when I'm rereading something that I'm writing, and then be really open to the intuitive split second urge to fix, to cut, to, you know, whatever. Somehow my working model is that the all the moral concerns and all the thematic concerns and all the politics is back there, you know, like that's... They're really eager to get in the story but i'm kind of like the bouncer saying okay but you we don't need you in this story you know or if you come in now you're going to come in too hot and mess my story up so please stay behind the you know behind the red rope there Mm -hmm. and by way of this instantaneous micro choosing what needs to come in will come in and what i found is that the stories that come out of that you know mode of production are just naturally more full of moral and ethical wrestling than the stuff I was doing before that method where I was purposely trying to make them little moral documents. And they tended to be sort of preachy and propagandistic and also dead on the page.
2: I have to ask you, George, about Alyosha the pot and your way that you actually anatomized that story. And I think at some point you said that, you know, the ending is so powerful because Tolstoy restrained himself from supplying an answer or an interpretation. And in many Mm -hmm. ways, perhaps the story was better than Tolstoy because he allowed it to not speak in his voice. And when you were talking about the way in which you want to make a story, a story is not reducible to a political moral or message. Um, I was thinking about the way in which maybe other novelists have talked about their work being better than they are in some ways, like there is their opinions, their beliefs, but if that's what they wanted to share with the world, they wouldn't write novels and fiction. And so there's this fundamental belief that they're producing work that is better than what they just have to say. And getting to that place is what makes Marx fiction as such, as something that they can believe in and and devote their lives to. And so I was just wondering if, in trying to get at the heart of that for you, and if we could talk a little bit about, as you pointed out, the the role that intuition plays in your process, but you've also described yourself As a control freak when it comes to revision and and sentences Mm. and so i'm just wondering and thinking too about your background in buddhism how both dissolution of self and giving up of control um works with an intense kind of precision and control as an artist like how you reconcile those two or is it better that it just exists in tension
1: you know that's a great question i the way i would say it is that the control uh comes in the form of iteration in other words I, in the moment of doing something I'm really trying to just feel what this I mean sounds a little corny but what the story wants me to do and that just means what scans better you know what it can uh, as I'm rereading what you know is more exciting I guess you would say the, but the control part comes in the refusal to let it go after that time so you, you know on Wednesday I, I go through a piece with that pencil in hand and honoring the intuition retype it up come in the next day and do exactly the same thing again that's the control you know for someone to do it once and say ah oh, the, the you know the muse has spoken would be giving up control but for me I, I don't um, uh, it's it's a combination of wild intuition with very very anal retentive of uh, repetition and in time the weird thing that happens is and this I think comes has come with years of, of practice the I would say that mm, by and large those micro decisions start leading in the same direction. When I was young, I would just keep changing stuff and it was like every day it was a new mess. But as I'm getting older, the changes seem to have a a systemic uh, inclination and the thing does move in a certain direction. So so yeah, it is a combination of both of those things. And also I should say, you know, since I mean, in fairness and honesty, and Anytime you talk about writing, you're only partly describing it. So I can say that when I'm sitting in front of the store, I'm in this heightened state of low rumination and no monkey mind and focus. But also in the middle of that, you know, the voice will go, oh, the New Yorker is going to love this, you know, yeah. or, or um, oh, you got to go to the store later. I mean, it's interesting that the mind is constantly popping on and off in those different modes. So in a way, what you're doing, it's like, it's like herding cats. I mean, the, the cats don't always go in the right direction, but generally speaking, you're able to sustain that that concentrative state longer, you know, and you're able to recognize when you're blowing it, you know, and maybe you give yourself a little pass, like, yeah, okay, that, you weren't really paying attention, let's read that paragraph again. So it's really interesting, you know, it's, it's just basically, it's a, it's a chance to really get in touch with you, the way your mind actually works, which is, you know, a privilege.
0: It it sounds like efficiency is a big part of that for you too. I was getting that from a lot of the things you were saying in "Swim in the Pond in the Rain," and it sounds like what you're saying now too. Is the story needs to be the story that results needs to be efficient. That's like control freak part. Is that is efficiency kind of the goal? One of the goals of of your control freak part of editing.
1: Yes, but um, efficiency defined really intelligently. So yeah. there are times when I get so efficient that I caught all the fun out of something and mm-hmm. my wife reads it and says, you did it again, you took all the So Too efficient is not... You know, if you go on a big car trip to California and your dad never lets you get out of the car because it's inefficient, that's not a good efficiency, you know? So for me, it's kind of like... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah uh, efficiency and also i think efficiency is is a function of the short story form for sure and i'd say maybe the novel too but since there's only a finite number of pages you know we kind of have have reader and writer have agreed that there's some uh sense in which this is a an exaggerated purposeful shape so randomness is kind of the enemy of that now you can have i think you can have shaggy efficiency you know where um, uh a section when we step back we can say oh this section exists to do a but when you look at it it does it a little bit slantwise. it does it a little in a kind yeah. of a anecdotal way or it puts in some you know so so all of that is part of sort of meta efficiency which i think is really just a function of the form you know you've only got nine pages or 300 so therefore you know it's understood that things should be to purpose i guess
2: could you Thanks. talk more about efficiency in the novel and in Lincoln in particular? Because maybe that was a departure for you too—not just in length, but in pastiche, in bringing other quotations into into the work, in arranging, in addition to narrating.
1: You know, when I first realized it was going to be a novel, I got a little bit ecstatic, like, "Oh, now I can be wasteful!" You know, <laughs> I can just, you know, uh, but then it, it turns out that isn't true. And so one of the the um, You know, what I found writing this book was that I was always developing rules, so rules for the fictive world, this kind of sci-fi afterlife, but also rules, formal rules, rules about the form of the book. And one of them that developed pretty quickly was that if I was going to use, uh, if I was going to interject a historical section, it had to be in causal relationship to what came before and after. So, you know, because, I mean, the number of historical sections could be infinite. So, therefore, you need a, a, a basis for selection. And it started to become just like in a story, you know, you look at the section and say, Why are you here in my story? And it gets a guilty look on its face and goes, Because I'm really funny. And you go, Uh uh-uh, uh, that's not quite enough. In, in the book, I mentioned this thing that I call the Cornfeld Principle after this guy, Stuart Cornfeld, a friend of mine and a movie producer. And he said that in a script, I think it's true of any narrative. Um, uh, a section, ideally, not you know not absolutely but ideally should uh, both be entertaining in its own right and should advance the story in a meaningful way. So if you apply that that standard, you know the section that's just funny might have to wait outside because it's you know. Likewise, the section that's only functional that isn't very fun or or vivid but does the work of proving something that also has to be reconsidered. So in Lincoln, the the structure uh, got strict on me quicker than I would have liked it to in the requirement that these that these historical sections had to be justified a little bit. So that was another form of efficiency. And actually the book, you know, I, I just outlined it. I'm trying to write a screenplay. And I was really, you know, kind of happy that it, it's quite, um, with a few exceptions, it's caused, you know, that section A causes section B, and, and things aren't there just for whimsicality. And partly, you know, because in a, a work like that, or like really my stories too, which are kind of strange, there's some kind of mathematical relationship between people uh, efficiency of form and strangeness of presentation so in other words if you're asking the reader to believe that link in in a graveyard at night with a bunch of ghosts uh efficiency of form is your friend because they say well there doesn't seem to be any silliness in the form it seems pretty mathematical and pretty um real then you buy yourself a little more uh belief for for the things that are require more belief if that makes sense
0: Absolutely. It, and it
1: sounds like you're applying the very same
0: principles to, to novel, to the novel as you are to the short story, just expanding them into longer form. Is that is that a fair assessment of what you're saying here?
1: Yeah, I mean, the joke I always made about Lincoln was that I, you know, I'd, I'd before I started, I'd kind of sworn off novels. Like I tried them and failed and I thought, you know, you got a pretty nice gig with just a story, so why, you know, why, why push it? Uh, and I said it was kind of if, if, you know, you had a really nice career Making custom yurts, you know, little you know, twenty by twenty things, and then someone said, "Oh, I'd like to commission you to build a mansion," and you were like, "No, I don't do, do that." And then you thought, "Well, wait a minute, I could just put a bunch of those little yurts together, you know, and call that a mansion." <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's what the, the book felt like to me was it's it's really kind of a I mean, it its form is a short story, but its its parts are just a little bit heftier, I think.
0: I I have to say I've never considered the novel as a series of of
1: yurts um, piled together. But, uh, but I like that image. Yeah. you probably shouldn't, since you're you're a scholar, you probably shouldn't. (laughs) Um,
0: Can, I want to ask you about, about your voice. Cause just sitting and reading across, uh, 10th of December and Fox eight and Lincoln and the Bardo, I I struggle. And I don't mean this at all as a criticism. I, I just find it very interesting. I struggled to like, to hear consistent George Saunders speaking to me after I put the book down each Each uh, short story seems to sort of speak in a different register.
1: I think when I was younger, I got really hung up on this idea of, you know, what is my voice? And I I thought about Faulkner a lot. And I Mm -hmm. pick up Faulkner and he always sounds like Faulkner. Uh, Hemingway always sounds like Hemingway. Mm -hmm. And I I felt that very much as a deficiency in myself. And then I just gave up. I said, you know, I, I somehow can't find, I can't find a voice that does justice to all the different ways that I f- feel about the world, mm-hmm. that, that's really true. Or another way of saying it might just be, I, I discovered that I could do a multiplicity of voices and that if I just picked up, if I if you gave me a three sentence swath in a certain voice, I'm pretty good at mimicking it and I could use it to make a story. So then at some point, just in the name of, you know, I was probably you know in my thirties and feeling like the ship was leaving the harbor and I thought, well, fuck it, I'm just gonna uh, do whatever voice comes to hand and I'm going to, for that one story, I'm going to accept that as my true voice, perfect it. And of course, during the course of a story, you have to also develop that voice, you know. And then I'm going to leave it alone if I don't want to use it again.
0: That, yeah. that also puts me in mind of all of those quotations that you have in Lincoln and the Bardo. You, you've mentioned these a bit already, but um, all those quotations from 19th century narratives, which a little bit of Googling told me that some of them are made up and some of them are are legit? Is that is that correct as a factual? Is, as a factual that question, that is correct. Um, I, I just I was really taken by the way that by but we we almost get a story coming. You, you advance the narrative through a little this little pastiche of historical um, anecdotes, um, and that I think further really decenters the the the, the, the singularity of your voice there. But I, could you talk through a little bit about your thought process and? in, in throwing that, those, pe- those moments of pastiche of historical narratives in.
1: Sure. Well, you know, we talked about efficiency and one of the, the rules of the, you know, that I discovered about the book was that, um, because it was going to be so weird and I was going to ask the reader to make so many leaps with me, I, I had to really be, um, careful about, uh, I guess, whimsicality, you know? And so I didn't, I, I was really like that bouncer saying, uh, OK, I don't, do I need this formal innovation or not? If I didn't need it, I, I couldn't have it. So in this case, what happened was really simple. Uh, I had written an early draft of maybe 30 or 40 pages where the only speakers were the ghosts. But then it, there was something missing. And what was missing was um, my, the research I had done for about 20 years on all the historical um, stuff surrounding this event. Of, of lincoln going in the graveyard and so um i uh i thought well I, I i need i need to have some of that i need to have something about this big party that the lincoln's had and they had this big party when their sons were sick and then maybe because of the party but certainly at after the party the, the boys went downhill and willie died so that would be heavy for a parent that had to be in there the fact that all this happens um You know, at one of the low moments of the Civil War, when Lincoln was really losing control of it. That seemed important. So the question then became, well, how do I get these facts in there uh, gracefully? And so for a while, I had um, Lincoln sort of musing about this stuff, which was very false, you know, that Mm -hmm. your son has just died, and you're going, oh, the Battle of Fort Donaldson has just occurred. I mean, that's (laughs) bullshit. So then I I just, you know, sometimes what I find in art is that if you can— work and work and work and clarify the problem you're having clarify the obstruction so that you can say it then the solution is kind of obvious so in this case i said i need to get this history in the book and then a little voice in my head said well how do you know it i said well i read it and then that little voice kind of put his hands up and went well and i said are you suggesting that i you know put things in verbatim and that voice is like well it's your book."
2: So, George, can I ask a quick question about um, what Michael was talking about before, all the research you did for Lincoln and then how to use that research? One of the things that was really powerful was, uh, I think, towards the end of the book, where you will, you lined up five or six different accounts of Lincoln that were in direct contradiction with each other. Um, someone characterizing him as patient, someone saying impatient, someone sentimental, someone highly ambitious and calculating. And so... Since you obviously have done meticulous research to the point where even your fictional voices are informed by empirical truths about the court records and how people actually spoke in the period, uh, was it a a deliberate decision to show all the contradictions in the historical record uh, as a way of talking about historical fiction, or was it more about telling the story in as many different voices as possible
1: yeah you know for me the way it works usually is that there's something uh intriguing about the surface qualities of the prose so in other words the uh th- that this thing you're talking about started early in the book with that section about the moon all the different descriptions of the moon mm-hmm. and w- i just you know thought of that on uh, on the spot did it and so enjoyed it so like the way it, it just the, you know the effect it produced uh of of the the contradiction. So for me, I, I, to be honest, mostly that's what I'm honoring as I'm writing. I, I get a certain effect and I go, oh, that's nice. I don't really worry what, about what it means too much because I think that part of the writer's job is to make a meaning that transcends articulation. You know, you, you can't reduce it. Uh, now, of course we do and, and that's criticism and it's fun and, and it's absolutely true. But it, in the moment of the creation, it's, it's more like, Oh, that's a cool when I do that. That that's a nice sound. There's something truthful about that. I like it, um, and so th- that's why, for example, in I think in the section you're talking about, some of that stuff is from history books and some am made up. Okay, and it, it's I, I'm just steering towards a certain sound.
2: I was just going to ask you about the audio version of the book. Mm. Um, given the number of voices that you you've written, and then. The story around the audiobook is just fantastic you gathered a hundred over a hundred different people non-professional act, professional actors non-professionals people from your family your, your background and i was just curious whether you felt that if the audiobook almost amounts to a different work to you or if it's just another version of the print if the different technology informed how you think readers receive the work do you think about audio Given that you're doing a podcast with us um as a, as, a, as a significant medium for your writing
1: yeah i really do i worked with a, a really brilliant producer named kelly gilday and it was mostly her doing to get all those 166 people in, and then of course to work the editor and everything. but I, I thought it was I, I listened to it on a drive across the country and i thought it mm-hmm. was really a different experience and and um i loved it so with this new book we did a, a sort of a similar thing i read the narration and then we had seven different readers to read the the, the russian stories. i think it's really a beautiful form uh very very different and it re- you know it reads uh i think more slowly at least for me at uh, the book i scan faster than i listen uh but when i listen to it there were a lot of things i just wasn't even aware it was it it was in the book and then by hearing it read i i yeah so and i love you know the collaboration part of it was really lovely you know to to get to know some of the people involved and and um and hear, hear them reading my work is really great. And and I, I think I, when I was younger, I had a brief, very brief uh, sort of uh, idea of being in theater, you know, when I was in high school. And so there's some satisfaction in coming back to that.
2: Could you imagine writing for audio first and paper second ever?
1: Sure. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because I I mean, I, I have a story now that's almost all dialogue. And it really, um, uh, I just... I I can hear it really well and right. I, and I I enjoy it. I think the the um and there there are people who are definitely doing that and and with you know. But for me I, there's still at the, at the end of the day there's uh the 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 word on the page is really my my first love and I'm not getting any younger so I have to hmm. you know.
2: Well, um George, we only have you for a couple more minutes. So there was one question I wanted to ask before I think Michael's going to ask our signature question. Um and that is because your newest book is based on your experience in the classroom Um, and because you've been such a wonderful advocate for fiction to, you know, the broader public, I wonder if you could say anything about not just reading fiction, but learning fiction at the, in the college classroom and the creative writing classroom and the importance of teaching literature and discussing it in a seminar space. Um, Could you talk a little bit about what it's meant to be a teacher of writing for, I think, almost as long as you've been a writer?
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, one year less or two? No, not four, four years less or five. Okay. I I think it's. Uh, I mean, I have a whole uh, soap I can get up on, but basically, I think that a lot of the problems we're having in our country have to do with mm-hmm. the slow but very real uh, erosion of belief in literature. That you know, that, and I think it started when I was a kid, and it's um, you know this sort of materialist uh, um, dismissal of anything that's not. You know, science, basically, or math, or, or shareholding. You know. So I think that we we uh, sort of let it go too easily, and I think we are learning that it's a bedrock thing for a culture. It's not a, it's not a uh, optional. It's not a niche thing. It's, it actually teaches us how to think. It teaches us how to imagine one another, uh, how to imagine people we don't know. And I think that the process of sitting in a classroom and uh, all focusing on a common fictive object is so powerful because it does so many things at once. One thing it does is it teaches us a rational analysis. You know, if you think a work is sexist, show me where. If you do, you've proved it. Now we can go on. Um, so many harmful ideas can be uh, transmitted in prose. If we've trained ourselves in reading it, we're, uh, we have a certain amount of imperviousness to that. We can identify BS when it shows up, um, the way that Orwell talked about in politics in the English language. And beyond that, I think it's so important to, you know, in the classroom to model the way that we can disagree. You know, we can, uh, we can maintain civility, uh, but we can also push back and, and we can respect each other and so on. So I, I think it's really, really important. And I think the, um, you know, I think our culture is suffering because we don't really believe in it. We, we, we sort of believe in it the way we believe in, uh, I don't know what you know. Something, a, a trivial hobby, maybe, or a charming little hobby. All you book people reading in the corner, you know, instead of being at the party, uh, buying stocks. <laughs> so I think I think it's very important, you know. And and I, but I also think you know, creative writing is. I have some mixed feelings about it because I think it's imperative that a, a, a writer read first a lot. You know, uh, there's no worse nightmare than a, than a creative an undergraduate creative writing workshop where nobody's read anything it's insane you, you know there's no basis for discussion so if I was designing a undergraduate program I would really front load some serious reading and maybe you know um, the analysis would be somewhat flavored like the one in, like in the book where you are taking it apart technically but you have to read the, some number of source texts first before you start trying to write your own or you're, you're you know you're like a, a rock musician who's never listened to a record it's it's you know it's all futility
2: Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I read a study recently about the the perception of the humanities in, in the United States. And for the most part, people are relatively positive when they hear certain words like literature, or the arts or philosophy. But one thing that was really surprising to me was that the associations of literature with pretentiousness or elitism had only gone up. So younger people between 18 and 29 Mm. were far more likely to regard literature as an elitist or pretentious pursuit than people in the other age demographics. So, you know, 40 to 59, 60 and Mm. above. And I'm just wondering what it is about the culture that has brought us to this place where literature is associated with elitism and pretentiousness and, um, Mm it's becoming concentrated among youth, who I would think of as being, you know, the people we most want to reach at this moment, so.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting, I didn't know that. You know, something comes to mind is that there's a kind of a death spiral that happens in art forms, I think, where, um, okay, so it's, first there's a little bit of a a slippage where, let's say, um, I hate to use this word, but, you know, regular people stop reading fiction, they move away from it. Mm-hmm. In response, the form adapts and becomes more insular, and now we've got protected spaces where it can be done and be funded, like MFA programs, for example. Well, then it gets even more insular, and fewer people read it, and it and it becomes a little bit of a niche activity for real. So that when you show, you know, your your kind of medium literary friend uh, a contemporary novel, he he can't, you know, it, it doesn't it it doesn't speak to him. So that, it's it's really tricky because there's also a way in which the The culture has become stupider you know and become more materialist and more uh addicted to to fast twitch activities but i think we're in a little bit of a death spiral now which is kind of why i i felt good about writing this book to say look if you like to read anything and you're interested in making your way back to literature these russians are a great starting point because they they are you know they're not fancy they're they're talking about people in trouble mostly you know people in different species of trouble and we the main currency is that you care about the person who's in trouble, uh, and you identify with the person is in trouble, and you recognize that it's just you on a different day. So I think it's a pretty that's a pretty broad doorway, but it's alarming, really. You know, because I, I mean, I, you know, I, I know a lot of people uh, who I love and who who basically say, hey, we bought your book. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, 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 we bought it. You know, <laughs> so so that's oh, not. But healthy. the the, know, the other half of that is who, we didn't
2: who, read it, miss per se, or. <laughs> We bought it i think maybe, yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. Or, or, you know, i tr- might have to spell it or out sometimes, for me sometimes i read
1: part of your you know i started it I started, yeah. yeah and so i think you know that, that but and the thing is that there's nobody i, I really believe it, there's nobody in the world who doesn't benefit from hearing a story if that story has something to do with what keeps them awake at night or or what they love or what they fear and th- th- that's those stories are essential to what we do here on earth without him, It's such a lonely place, you know, without, if you are having an issue and there's n- literally no echo from the world affirming that you're not the first person to have that issue, that's an incredibly lonely, you know, de- deathly place.
0: I could sit here and ask George questions all day, uh, to, 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 uh, about the remedies we need for our society and the prescriptions. Um, but I suppose, Arthur, you were saying we should move towards the, the final The question, lighter moments of the, our show. The, our yes. s- the signature question for the podcast. <laughs> yes. Before we do that, George, I just want to say thank you. I can tell you that I've got a, at least 20 friends who are going to be extremely jealous. I have told no one yet that I'm interviewing you and I'm going to drop it on people. So uh, I'll have a lot of people who are jealous. At least there's a lot of readers in, in my circle so um, who love your work. Well, um, okay, so pleasure. the figna- the signature question that we end this podcast on every time is um. What is your favorite treat while in the throes of writing and or what do you play or eat when the going really gets tough?
1: I, you know, this is embarrassing, but I eat pretzel rods. I get these <laughs> Snyder's pretzel rods and there's a big old vat of them in the closet. And I just kind of, I, I think it's probably the way people would reward themselves with a cigarette. I just, you know, grab one. And and then when I was writing Weekend in the of the ending, the last third was just a frenzy, a beautiful <laughs> One of the most beautiful experiences I ever had, and at that time it was graham crackers same thing little mm-hmm. those kind of honey graham crackers, you know, and so i'd be out <laughs> in the shed working and then come in and and in that with that book there was a there was a time at the end there were uh <clears throat> you know I could feel all the bowling pins in the air, so to speak you know and and i but the main thing I was trying to do was just really maintain intensity and not um settle into writing but so I would I would come in the house and uh put on either Wilco or Slater Kinney mm. and those in really loud and kind of just get my blood boiling a little bit uh and like kind of remembering what intensity felt like and then go back to the shed with, you know, with a couple of graham crackers stashed away and. <laughs> so.
2: Riot girl and graham crackers is an excellent combination. I'm I'm all for that. Yeah, <laughs> George Michael, thank you so much again for doing the show. And as we approach the end of the first season of Novel Dialogue, uh, John and I would like to thank all the critics and novelists who gave us a chance and made the show such a pleasure to do. We are grateful to the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship and acknowledged support from Brandeis, the Mellon Connected PhD program and Duke University. Nai Kim is our production intern and designer and Claire Ogden is our sound engineer. Past episodes include Bruce Robbins in conversation with Orhan Pamuk, Olga Anjaria in dialogue with Madhuri Vijay, and Elizabeth McMahon with Helen Garner. So from all of us here at Novel Dialogue, thanks for listening and look out for season two on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.